Well, hello. Thanks for clicking in. This is Get Ready for Sunday, a weekly podcast previewing the scripture readings for the Sunday Masses in Catholic churches on November 14th, 2021. It's the 33rd Sunday in Ordinary Time of Year B in the cycle of readings, if you're keeping score at home. If you'd like to have your eyes on the scripture readings as I talk about them, simply go to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website. It's usccb.org. In the top navigation bar, select Daily Readings, scroll down to the date for the Mass, and click on in. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm not here to preach at you. I'm here to share some background and context information gathered from the work of actual scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators, but fair warning, it is all sifted through my own tiny brain. This is the final regular Sunday of this church year. Next week, we celebrate the Feast of Christ the King. And that's the last Sunday of the liturgical year. With this 33rd Sunday, we have our final passage from the Gospel of Mark for the year, and we conclude our six-week-long look into the letter to the Hebrews as the second reading for the Mass. Throughout the weeks we've read from Hebrews, the author has proclaimed and explained Jesus as the new high priest of all humanity by contrasting him with the Levitical priests of the Jewish people throughout their history. This Sunday's short passage from Hebrews continues that same theme. Here it is. Brothers and sisters, every priest stands daily at his ministry, offering frequently those same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But this one offered one sacrifice for sins, and took his seat forever at the right hand of God. Now he waits until his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has made perfect forever those who are being consecrated. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer offering for sin. One quick tidbit. That image of one's enemies becoming one's footstool It shows up from time to time in the scriptures. I always thought it to be an image built of hyperbole. But no. I recently read an account of some ancient rulers who would, in fact, use their conquered foes as footstools, forcing them to grovel at their feet and be used as footrests by the victors. We are very close to the end of the liturgical year, so the end times theme is appropriate as each church year attempts to take us from the coming of the Christ through to its ultimate universal salvific result. To offer glimpses of some aspects of that, we have two scriptures today that are apocalyptic in scope and style. The first reading from the book of Daniel, and what many call the little apocalypse in Mark's gospel. We do not hear often from the book of Daniel. In Christian tradition, this book is considered the fourth and last of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. The book takes its name from its hero, Daniel, 
a young Jewish prophet who, supposedly, was born and lived in Babylon during the Babylonian captivity of the Jewish people. That exile began in 587 B.C. Daniel is said to have lived his entire life in captivity, first under the Babylonians, then under the Medes, and finally under the Persians. However, categorizing this volume as a prophetic book is a bit misleading. Categorizing it as any single type of literature is problematic. The first portion of the book consists of stories about Daniel and companions that many scholars believe is historical fiction. The second part of the work is made up of apocalyptic visions presented as if Daniel had written them. He did not write them. If this material was the entirety of the book, it would probably be called something like the Apocalypse of Pseudo-Daniel. But that title would assume that the still-controversial actual existence of Daniel was fact. How can scholars be so sure? It's the content of the book itself. It betrays knowledge of things that in the 6th century B.C., hadn't happened yet. Based on the conditions and events reflected in the book, its authorship can be dated quite confidently to around 165 BC. Its author is unidentified. So, you might be asking, if its author is unidentified and it purports to be about a period that is, in fact, not the period in which it was written, why is it in the canon of Scripture? How come it's in the Bible? Here's how come. The narrative contained in the four visions described in the second section of the book whisks the reader through history into the terrible persecution of the Jews under the Greek Antiochus IV. He was a bad man. He slaughtered 40,000 Jews and took an equal number into slavery. He looted the Jerusalem temple. He also appended Epiphanes to his name, becoming Antiochus Epiphanes, God made manifest. Many in his realm, however, referred to him as Antiochus Epimanes, Antiochus the crazy man. So, this work, concentrating on standing strong in one's faith, remaining faithful in the times of worst oppression, was well-timed and precisely crafted to uplift the spirits of the Jews at the time of its writing. But back to Daniel. Let's call him the persona called Daniel. He is said to have been famous for his ability to interpret dreams and for his own apocalyptic visions. Themes in the book of Daniel include heroism, remaining true to God in the midst of a hostile and idolatrous culture, and God's protection of his faithful ones through his angels. Chapters 1 through 6 of the book refer to the trials of the Jews staying faithful to their God, such as in chapter 3, when three young men, my favorite triple names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are saved from a fiery furnace by an angel. Chapter 6 describes Daniel in a lion's den, 
from which an angel saves him by shutting the mouths of the lions. The second section of the book contains the apocalyptic visions attributed to and written in the voice of Daniel. It is from the concluding verses of that section that we read for this Mass. Here it is. In those days I, Daniel, heard this word of the Lord. At that time there shall arise Michael, the great prince, guardian of your people. It shall be a time unsurpassed in distress since nations began until that time. At that time your people shall escape, everyone who is found written in the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some shall live forever. Others shall be in everlasting horror and disgrace. But the wise shall shine brightly, like the splendor of the firmament. And those who lead the money to justice shall be like the stars forever. We just heard the most explicit mention of an eternal life for humans and a consequential judgment in all of the Hebrew Scriptures. Listen again. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some shall live forever. Others shall be an everlasting horror and disgrace. We also get the appearance of Michael the Archangel coming in a time of great evil and suffering. As with all apocalyptic literature, this scene concludes with the triumph of good over evil. We tend, or at least contemporary culture at large tends, to concentrate on the gruesome imagery, the cataclysmic nature of events, and come away with a generally negative connotation for things labeled as apocalyptic. This genre, in truth, is much more about the goodness and ultimate triumph of a merciful God. It is a reassurance that the presence of whatever appears to be insurmountable evil is, for those who remain faithful to God, merely the darkness which precedes the dawning of a new and better day. This passage serves as the contextual backdrop for Jesus' prophecies that we read in the Gospel at this Mass. One quick note before we leave Hebrews for the year. It's a Catholic bonus, if you will. There is a third section of the book of Daniel in Catholic Bibles. It's called, most often, an appendix. In antiquity, it exists only in the Septuagint and contains three short stories. First is a relatively long story about the virtue of a very beautiful woman called Susanna. She rejects the sexual demands of two powerful men. They subsequently and falsely accuse her of adultery. Daniel, then only a boy, is prompted by God to speak out in her defense. He exposes the lies of her accusers, wins her freedom, and himself becomes famous within the community. The next two stories are sort of detective yarns. In the first, Daniel proves the falseness of the Babylonian god Bel, also known as Marduk, and the machinations of Marduk's priests. In the second story, he demonstrates that another Babylonian god is false 
and powerless. This ends with a second sentencing to have Daniel thrown into a den of lions. Maybe it's the first time with the lions. I'm not sure about the chronology here. God delivers Daniel from the danger again. This time, God has an angel pick up the prophet Habakkuk by his hair and bring food for Daniel into the lion's den. On his seventh day with the lions, but showing no ill effects, the king praises and recognizes the sovereignty of the God of Israel and frees Daniel. Virtually all Protestant Bibles do not include these stories. Now, a quick look at the responsorial psalm is in order. This is the same responsorial we use for the Mass on Monday after Easter, with only the refrain changed. During Easter, the refrain is, Keep me safe, O God, you are my hope. At this Mass, it is, You are my inheritance, O Lord. It is all from Psalm 16. The first stanza is a celebration of the God of Israel as the one who prevails over false gods and their followers. He is the one who actually is. Note the image with the words, You are my portion and my cup. It might seem to be only about being well fed. Go deeper into the symbolic language and portion refers to the land inherited by the Jewish people. The cup is seen as a reference to the cup of solidarity shared within the community. The land that makes the people who they are, as a people, along with community with one another and their God. This is all the writer believes to be needed for a life of safety and sufficiency. Here is the psalm with the refrain only at the beginning and the end. You are my inheritance, O Lord. O Lord, my allotted portion and my cup. You it is who hold fast my lot. I set the Lord ever before me. With him at my right hand I shall not be disturbed. Therefore my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My body, too, abides in confidence. Because you will not abandon my soul to the netherworld nor will you suffer your faithful one to undergo corruption. You will show me the path to life, fullness of joys in your presence, the delights at your right hand forever. You are my inheritance, O Lord. On to the day's gospel. It gives us part of the final discourse Jesus has with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. This takes place soon after the group leaves the temple following the scene we read last Sunday. On the way out of the temple area, Jesus has predicted the destruction of that temple. When they are at the Mount of Olives, Peter, James, John, and Andrew are with Jesus in private conversation. They ask when the destruction will take place and what sign might warn them of its coming. That Mark notes this smaller group, the ones who've been with Jesus the longest time, is a signal that what will follow has deep significance. In his statements following this one question about the destruction of the temple, 
Jesus ultimately winds up speaking of two different events. One is obviously concerning the temple structure itself. The other concerns the parousia, the return of the Son of Man at the end of days. It's easy to get the two answers, the two events, run together in our minds because their separation in the narrative goes by fast. Fortunately for us, in the passage we have, Jesus is already done talking about the temple's destruction. Our gospel scene at this Mass begins with Jesus describing signs that will precede the end times. A version of this scene is recorded in all three synoptic gospels. It is the apocalyptic portion of Mark's gospel and also constitutes a farewell discourse in the style of many such passages in Hebrew scriptures. Other scholars refer to this as Jesus' eschatological discourse, describing its references to end times. It is also known as the Olivetan Discourse because of its location. It has all of those names because it is all of those things. Scripture scholars, you see, don't necessarily simplify things for us. The passage we hear at this Mass begins after Jesus has told the four named disciples that there will be many false preachers to come who will masquerade as him or his spokesman. He foretells a time of great natural and man-made disasters, earthquakes and wars, and that many will find themselves suffering persecution for following him. Jesus also assures them that faithful disciples will always have the presence of the Holy Spirit to inspire and energize them. The gospel, he promises, will be preached to the whole world before the end time comes. Mark's Jesus is making sure the disciples have confidence that evil will not have the last word. It is at the moment of deepest despair, Jesus promises, that they will experience the return of the Son of Man. Here is the day's reading from the Gospel according to Mark. Jesus said to his disciples, In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, with great power and glory, and then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the end of the earth to the end of the sky. Learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, know that he is near at the gates. Amen, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven, 
nor the Son, but only the Father. From the Mount of Olives, Jesus and his disciples would be able to see the great temple. It was a huge and truly magnificent complex. It was the anchor point of the spiritual life for all Jews. With that in view, in the verses preceding what we hear at Mass, Mark has Jesus describing the time of the destruction of the temple and now speaks of days after that tribulation. He describes a time of complete disorientation. Nothing from the physical world works to let one know where they are or what will come next. The sun and the moon define time for us. The day is the cycle of the sun. The moon shows us the months and the seasons. The stars are humanity's always dependable points of orientation. Their stable, predictable patterns provide our ability to navigate across land and sea. But at the approach of end times, sun, moon, and stars all go away. Time and space are no longer discernible. They are no longer relevant. That's the entrance cue for the great final redemption led by the Son of Man. Here, Jesus is making reference to one of the visions in the book of Daniel. It's in chapter 7, if you'd like to check it out. This brings the dawning of the new light. The new and eternal orientation points arrive. The followers of Jesus have waited for this, as the church likes to pray, in sure and certain hope. Jesus drops in a troubling phrase. Heaven and earth will pass away. I've had trouble with that image for as long as I can remember. But today, for some reason, it suddenly makes sense to me. The earth will pass away, no problem with that. It'll happen long after I'm out of time and space myself. But heaven will pass away? That's been the sticking point for me. Because we always conceptualize that as our eternal home, presuming we make the cut. But then again, our ideas, our imaginings about what the word really means, they all have to be flawed, way too small to describe a reality that embraces all that is. I can easily accept that, however simple or sophisticated my concept of heaven might be, the reality ain't that. That's not a very scholarly observation. It's just something that's been hanging around in my head. Maybe yours too? The reference to heaven and earth passing away, but Jesus' words, that is, the truth of his teaching, remaining, is also a great way to emphasize his authority to teach. The principal point of the passage, I think, is the promise of the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus, the human one, the Son of Man, Christ, the presence of God. In that regard, I suggest it's equally important for us to look at what Mark has told us about Jesus under this title, Son of Man. 
Often we conjure up images of a vengeful God, or at least a most fearsome one. Mark paints a different picture. The Son of Man in this gospel is the one who forgives sin, who places humanity above merely symbolic observances, who comes to serve not to be served, who willingly offers himself to bring others into a fullness of life. Just a couple more observations about the language here. First, the business of the fig tree. Singling out the fig tree, a deciduous plant, is most likely a contrast to the fact that most of the species of trees in the area are evergreens. Seeing the budding forth of the fig would be the observable sign absent from the other trees. The second issue is less simple. It's the business of the following line. Amen, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. The line appears in the text where Jesus is describing the eschaton, the end times. If it was within the description of the destruction of the temple, it would be so much easier to understand. It would have happened as predicted. So, did some copyist accidentally move the line? Or perhaps this generation is a reference to the Jewish people as a whole. Some scholars have proposed that, but it's not widely accepted. Perhaps all these things is a reference to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus under his role as the new temple, the new presence of God with his people. Perhaps. I take no side in the controversy, but I do take great comfort in what Jesus says very soon thereafter. But of that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son. Apparently there was no cable TV back then, and Jesus did not have the benefit of all the televangelists who claimed to have figured out the date, and who will explain it all in the video they have for sale. And, since the end is just around the corner anyway, you might as well put the price on your credit card because you probably won't have to pay for it that way, the world being over and all. Seems obvious to me that I'm running off the rails again. It's time to stop. Thanks for clicking in. I pray your days are filled with the joy of true connection with our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.